come from my mouth be inspired by your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please be seated? Well, over the, the last month or so, we've been uh, digging into uh, this theme of generosity. Uh, if you haven't um, caught the series or you've missed some of them, please um, uh, go onto our website or subscribe through iTunes. Uh, it has been quite a profound uh, and impactful series, and I'm not just saying that because I've preached all the sermons. Um, uh, I, I've been uh, actually overwhelmed by the depth of, of connection that we've had uh, with uh, this, this series, and I do pray that that's helping us to become a generous uh, congregation and generous individuals by nature and culture. But consistent uh, through this series has been the contrast between what happens if we seek first the kingdom of God compared with what happens if we seek first our own kingdoms. If we start by seeking our own interests, then what results is something that is superficial and short-lasting. But if we seek first God's kingdom, even though it can be costly, it can impact our relationships, our church, and our world. Over the last two weeks, we've seen how we can be generous with hope and peace when we embrace the difficult things in life and focus on God and others. And traditionally, when we get to this time of Advent, uh, we're encouraged to talk about joy. Joy is a common theme during Advent and Christmas. You see it on Christmas cards. You see it in the decorations. You uh, see it and hear it in the uh, music that's streaming from our shopping centres, from our radios, and even from our churches. Yet joy, and I mean, I mean the real deep type of joy, not the joy that we wear as a mask so people don't ask us how we're going, can often be elusive, especially at this time of year. Loneliness, family tension, inflated expectations, unexpected crisis, grief, local, national and international events can make joy seem out of our reach. And this elusiveness of joy can cause us to pause and to reflect and ask ourselves, what do we really mean when we say that we're seeking after joy? Is it some sort of emotional high? Is it just being happy? Or is it something more? I'm going to step through the verses of Paul's letter to the Philippians because I think in those verses that we heard this morning, there is a real framework for us to understand real joy. Because for Paul, joy is not an emotion. Rather, it's an attitude, it's behaviours, and it's the relationships that all add together to produce joy. 
Paul urges us uh, that we should rejoice in the Lord always. Is he asking us whether joy can become a habit or an attitude that informs and directs our behaviour always, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of how many people are wandering over at Rabina Town Centre at the moment and you can't get a park, regardless of how annoying people are at the moment, regardless of whether your life is at it, really does seem to be in a mess at the moment. Paul knows this all too well because he's writing to the Philippian church from prison. His life is not that great at the moment. Yet he's writing about joy. The critical thing for us in this uh, little passage, um, particularly as we try to understand the link between generosity and joy, are these three words, in the Lord. Where we find our joys, not in ourselves, not in our possessions, not in how many gifts that we have under the tree or how many we've bought for other people, but our, re- our joy is in the Lord. There can be lots of things that can cause us to rejoice. Good news, an unexpected reprieve, an achievement of a hard-earned goal. But in, in most cases, happiness is only fleeting. But where there's cause for real rejoicing and real joy, it can have an enduring impact. Joy will continue after the event. So to rejoice in the Lord always points to a joy that's not only enduring, but that sustains us even when we're worn down by life's challenges. The critical thing here is relationships. Our relationship with God through Jesus Christ and our relationship with our community. For Paul, rejoicing is the outcome of mutual support. At the start of this letter, he says, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And in the same way, you must also be glad and rejoice with me. Remember that he's asking them to rejoice that he's in prison. We'll leave that for a bit later. And in a few more verses, he says these words. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. That doesn't mean that we always have to get along with each other and agree. Rather, it's reminding us that each one of us has a role to play in creating these interdependent, mutually supportive relationships No one is an island, particularly followers of Jesus. We're called to be there for each other. We're called to support and care, not just in the good times, in all times. He goes on uh, in verse 5 to talk about gentleness. 
And when he uses the word gentleness, uh, don't mistake Paul for thinking, be meek and mild. In the original Greek of this word, it more means like tolerance than any form of submissiveness. And so to embody this type of gentleness Paul is talking about, we need to recognise that we have a choice in how we connect with the people around us, how we behave. It's not just about being nice or kind. It's about our impact on those around us. Are we generous or are we really self-focused? Generous, generosity requires humility and self-awareness. And this is the power of Christ. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, this is how Jesus describes himself as gentle and humble in heart. And this is what we're called to be, to be like Jesus to those around us in the world, gentle and humble in heart. And in verse 6, um, Paul's saying, well, don't worry about anything. It's all good. He's not quite saying it that way. He's not suggesting that there's nothing that we need to worry about or the things that we do worry about aren't important. He's rather wanting us to look at our anxieties and our fears in context of our relationship with God. To know that we're not alone. We're invited to make ourselves known to God. That might sound a bit weird. Make yourself known to God. Doesn't God already know how many hairs we've got on our head? Some more than other, other people, I know. But God knows that, sure. But from our perspective, are we open to God? Are we vulnerable before God? Or are we trying to protect ourselves in some way from something that God already knows? This is what Paul's trying to help us to understand. So looking at these verses, Paul shows us that joy is deep. It comes from relationship with God and it's fueled by generosity and a God and others focused. It's not just momentary but has a lasting impact. Last week we heard from uh, John the Baptist, who last week we looked at the theme of peace and looking at uh, that uh, quite um, rustic man on the screen. Uh, he didn't look very peaceful last week. But when we actually looked at what he was saying and his pursuit of justice and mercy, we found a generous peace as the motivator. And this, this week, we're looking at that image and saying, well, he doesn't look very happy. How could he be joyous? You heard um, Paul read brilliantly that, um, that gospel reading, you brood of vipers. That doesn't sound joyous at all. But if we look deeper, we do find the key to generous joy. In the season that celebrates consumerism and elevates extravagance, a message that calls out the way that we abuse 
our power in relationships with others is not a very popular one. It wasn't very popular in John the Baptist's time either. It's what got him killed. And it may put us at risk as well. While we'd like to imagine ourselves as altruistic, as inherently generous, the truth often leaves most of us embarrassed. We convince ourselves that we're far more philanthropic than is actually true. And more often what we call selflessness is a vile attempt to deny the impulses that John names, to keep our coats, to store our food, to strategize how best to maximize our money, to pretend that no one will notice if we store up our produce, while all the while there are people both nearby and in other parts of God's created world who are cold and wondering where their next meal will come from. I know it's not a happy message at this time of year. It's much easier to be um, looking on the surface and saying um, how good it is to be festive and frivolous. But festivity and frivolity isn't joy. And John the Baptist reminds us that the kingdom of God is not about festivity and frivolity in and of itself. The kingdom of God is where people are hurting, where they're hungry, when they're lost, where they're lonely, when they're dispossessed, where there's injustice. This is where God is and calls us to be, particularly during Christmas season. Advent's not a time when we can press pause on our call to follow Jesus and say, oh, we'll get back to it in January. We actively wait. And in that activity, we have to work out how to be joyful and how to share and show joy even when it's hard and we're not feeling like it. John's proclamation is not just a reminder to take the focus off ourselves, but it's an urgent plea for us to do it. If I've been gentle with my focus on seek first the kingdom of God over the last few weeks, John the Baptist is bringing a sledgehammer this morning. Please stop what you're doing right now, focus on God, get right with God, and get about what God is calling you to do because God's forgiven you. During Advent, it's so easy for us to replace our waiting with complacency, our expectation with inaction, and our hope with a self-righteous certainty. Too often, we buy into the idea that the world wants us to believe that joy is really just superficial, something that we can hold on to ourselves. And it can be used to mask a darkness that hides within. And for me, as I'm wrestling with what it means to be generous with joy and what it means to actually have joy, embracing the darkness in us and the world that we see around us is the key to understanding and then sharing joy.
There's a beautiful line in the prayer book. There's lots of beautiful lines in the prayer book, um, even though I don't always use the lines in the prayer book. Uh, There's one um, prayer that I love praying, um, and it's during a funeral service. It has um, this sentence in it. Let our grief give way to joy. It's a beautiful prayer. But to let that joy overcome us, first we need to acknowledge that there is grief and there is darkness. And we don't do this alone. We do it in relationship with God. And sometimes it's helpful to do this with the help of a trusted relationship. On Wednesday morning, I had to preach uh, at our morning service um, on the well-known passage from Matthew 11. Come to me, all that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. On Tuesday uh, evening, I pulled up my computer and was met with this beautiful, beautiful phrase that, that I'm sure most of you have heard before. And as I was reflecting about what I was going to say, I actually felt a real anger and resentment welling up from within me. And I started to have an internal argument with God. It went something like this. Gee, thanks God for this awesome passage that I have to preach on tomorrow. Surely you know how tired I am at the moment. And I do not know anyone who has a longer to-do list than I do. I haven't got time to rest. And it's because I work for you. I did really have to wrestle with this. Um, And as I got down on my knees, God showed me that actually it was generated by a self-focused darkness. And until I did get on my knees and I accepted who I was becoming and repented of it, then God was clear that I wouldn't find that rest that was promised. I'd just get busier and more grumpy and more frustrated. And nobody wants a grumpy priest, particularly at Christmas time. And I did realise that all my years in playing in a band taught me uh, to, to, to make it until you, uh, to fake it until you make it. And I'm good at showing a game face. I'm good at convincing everybody that it's all smooth on the surface while underneath I'm paddling like a duck. But it's not supposed to be this way with joy. And more and more people are becoming attuned to those who are disingenuous, particularly at this time of year. You can spot a fake a mile away, particularly if you're over there at the shopping centre in a long queue, maybe look waiting for a photo. Don't worry, I'm not going to go there and ruin anybody's illusions. But before we can be generous with joy, we have to be honest 
with ourselves and embrace the darkness within us and ask God to forgive us and redeem the darkness. The darkness doesn't always go away. But I've seen over and over and over again the way God can use a person's experience of dark times while not always removing it to become powerful witnesses, a testimony of God's faithfulness and actually lead to joy even in the midst of sorrow in the embracing of our darkness and our dark moments, we find a lifting of our burdens and a renewal of hope and trust in the one who forgives us. And when we understand the magnitude of forgiveness, we have no choice but to feel joy. A couple of years ago, our theme was Living Forgiven. And we really tried to explore what it means uh, to really understand what it means to be forgiven. And if we understand how liberating that can be, the only real way we can respond is with this real generous joy. And once we've embraced our darkness and our grief, we're called to embrace the darkness and grief in the world that we live in. And this is where joy gets generous. Knowing that you can be a light in dark places for someone else is one of the most joyful things that I know of. Coming alongside another who's hurting, who's low, who might not need any words but just needs someone alongside them knowing that you may not have helped, but you've been there. Seeing a person be lifted up emotionally or physically or socially actually makes us feel real joy, deep joy. I find it really interesting uh, towards the end of this rant from John the Baptist which is, it's a veritable tongue lashing. He just doesn't mince any words. It's, you, you, I think if you've got a sermon like that on Sunday, you would never come back again. But the crowd doesn't sulk away. Instead, they were filled with expectation. I had to ask myself, why are they filled with expectation? He's just told them they're a bunch of filthy sinners. Well, the thing that we can easily miss is that they've repented and they've been forgiven in the meantime. They're, they've moved from fear to possibilities and they want more. It's like in that moment of baptism, of repentance of sins, their grief has given way to joy. I want to ask you this morning are you prepared to embrace and name your darkness 
Are you prepared to let God confront you on your self-focus? Will you accept the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ? Can we, through our God and others' focus, use those times of our darkness to bring light to others in dark places? If this is something that's resonating with you uh, this morning, uh, this evening at six o'clock we have a special service uh, that will really give some space to really reflect on this. My prayer is that we might understand the depth behind this relationship that God is giving us and wells up within us and lightens our loads that allows us to fall to our knees when we need to, but rises up with expectation, looking and seeking for opportunities to show and share joy. Can I pray? Loving God, reveal to us those things that we hide from ourselves and each other, those dark places and experiences that we just need to open up to you and to ask you to intervene and to redeem and lift us up might we find in your forgiveness a real expectation, a real lifting of our burdens and a sense of joy that overflows from our mouths, from our actions. Might we be unable to help ourselves when it comes to showing your joy this Advent? even when we're not smiling. Help us to exude your love, your hope and your peace and your joy. We ask this in your name. Amen. We're going to continue our time of prayer as dawn leads us.